Turn with me to Matthew 5. Matthew 5, we're going to be looking at verses 21 through 26. Matthew 5, 21 through 26. You have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, shall be guilty before the supreme court. And whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, Leave your offering there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Truly, I say to you, You will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. Let's pray. Father, we come and we are very aware, Lord, that deep in our hearts lies anger, often resentment, and even deep-rooted bitterness. And Lord, I know just in my own life there can be days where I just wake up and I, I wake up angry. I wake up just with these emotions, not even sure where they come from, and sometimes not even sure what to do with them. And so, Lord, we come before you as a very needy people. We need to hear you speak to us this morning. Prepare our hearts, Lord, and however we have entered, whatever relationships, whatever strife, whatever conflict, whatever things maybe way in the past, Lord, may we leave here not only right with you, but with a heart that is prepared to reconcile. Lord, may you use our pastor and your word and your spirit to move us into a place where we are exceedingly right with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we are continuing in our series on the greatest sermon ever preached by the greatest preacher who ever lived. And that is none other than Jesus Christ and his sermon on the Mount. Patrick Combs received an advertisement in the mail about how he could make big money working out of his home. Perhaps you have received something like that before. It was classic junk mail. But attached to the letter was a fake check for $95,000 made out in Patrick Combs' name. In the corner of the check were the words, non-negotiable. Were clearly written, but just to see what would happen, Combs deposited the check into his bank account and was surprised the next day to see that his bank account had increased by... $95,000. He expected the bank to see their error and take it back, but weeks later, the money was still there. So Combs began to withdraw some of the cash. And it was at that point when the bank was no longer just dealing with zeros on a screen, but real money, that they realized their mistake. Here's the problem, though. A technicality in the law said that simply writing non-negotiable in the corner was not enough to render a check null and void. And at that point, the window for the bank to withdraw the money had closed. And so through a crazy legal loophole, the check was valid and the bank had no legal grounds to get the money back. All they could do was try to persuade and pressure Combs to give back what was now legally his. It wasn't ethically his. 
it wasn't morally his, but because of a loophole, it was legally his. Finally, after months of the bank appealing to his conscience and trying to convince him that the words non-negotiable really meant the check was invalid, Combs finally paid the money back by writing a check for the full amount. For his own amusement, Combs wrote the words non-negotiable in the corner of the check. But the bank didn't hesitate to honor his check as valid. Now, you say, what's the point of that? The point is people, us even, we can be very creative at discovering loopholes. Loopholes are simply ways of getting around laws or rules that we don't like. Getting around them without totally defying them or even technically breaking the law or the rule. And Jesus now... Going back to the Sermon on the Mount, if you can imagine, he's on the side of this mountain with his disciples and crowds gathered all around. He recognized that the religious leaders of his day had become masters at finding loopholes that enabled them to appear righteous on the outside without actually being righteous on the inside. They had created loopholes in their religious system that enable them to perfect this outward righteousness while their hearts all the while were filled with unrighteousness. We might say that they were cashing fake righteousness checks. And Jesus now calls them out for it. And in the same time, he tells us, listen, Here's what true righteousness looks like. Here's what exceeding righteousness looks like in my kingdom. Here's how we are to live as kingdom citizens now. Jesus has just told us in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20, For I say to you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. That presents a problem for all of us. Because the only way that we can ever exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees and render unto God the perfect righteousness that He requires in order to enter the kingdom of heaven is to receive it by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And by God's grace and in His love and in His mercy... That's exactly what God provides for us. God provides for us what we could never, ever achieve on our own. As the Apostle Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him, that is the Son, Jesus Christ, who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that in him, in him by faith, we might become the very righteousness of God. And now, Jesus is telling us, as his followers, as kingdom citizens, who have now received God's perfect righteousness, and so now we stand before him, declared justice and righteous. Now, because of our new life in Christ, Jesus is saying, you should also have an exceeding righteousness. In other words, you should also have a righteousness that really does exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees as a result of your new life in Christ. You've been given a new heart. You've been born again. You're now part of the kingdom of God. And now he sets it up and says, here's what it means to live in that kingdom that is here on earth. It has not yet been fully consummated. It's here, but not yet. Here's what true righteousness looks like. Living it out. And in the rest of Matthew chapter 5, Jesus shows us now a picture of this exceeding righteousness or the road to exceeding righteousness for kingdom citizens. And the first of which is, notice this in your notes, coming up on the screen, is to repent of murder without knives and be reconciled to others. Notice again what Pastor Chris read for us in our text verses 21 and 22. These are the words of Jesus Christ on the Sermon on the Mount. Listen to what he says. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, 
And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Now, you've got to stop and you just got to admit that that is rather strong language. In fact, that is really strong language. And what we're going to find out is that it doesn't get any softer as Jesus continues his Sermon on the Mount. And so let's understand what Jesus is doing here and what he's not doing. Jesus is beginning a new section now in his sermon, what is typically called by commentators the antithesis or the six antithesis. And each one of these antithesis, it covers a different topic. And today we're going to see the topic of anger. Next week we'll talk about the topic of lust. It covers divorce, these oaths, retaliation, even love of neighbor. And each one of these antithesis is set up with a contrast. And they're all introduced essentially in the same way, where Jesus says these words. You have heard that it was said. Six different times he says that. You have heard that it was said. But I say to you. And he speaks with authority when he says that. Now, what is the purpose of Jesus doing this? What is he trying to accomplish in the Sermon on the Mount with these six contrasts or antithesis? We'll notice it. I think Jesus' purpose is twofold, the first of which is to expose something here, to expose the perversion of the scribes and Pharisees' interpretation of the law. Which means we should not think that Jesus is contrasting what he says now in the sermon with what God had said in the Old Testament. Remember, Jesus had just finished showing how high a view he has of God's law, of the Old Testament scriptures, and that he did not come to abolish the law or to destroy the law, to nullify the law, nor did he come to relax any of his commands or condone anyone who does. Instead, Jesus is confronting, can we say it this way, loopholes around God's law that had been created by the religious leaders. Whenever Jesus quotes the Old Testament, it's interesting when you study his words in the Gospels here, he almost always begins with this phrase, it is written. It is written in reference to what God said in the Old Testament. But here he says, you have heard that it was said. Why does he begin that way? Because Jesus is not quoting necessarily the Old Testament as much as he is quoting Jewish traditions, their loopholes, around the law. So what Jesus is contradicting is not the law in and of itself, but certain perversions of the law of which the scribes and the Pharisees were guilty. In other words, Jesus is exposing, he's calling them out for their loopholes concerning the Old Testament law. And at the same time in doing that, he is holding up the law and saying, here's the meaning of it. Here's the true intent that God had when he gave the law. This is what it means to abide by the law and live it out with exceeding righteousness. Which brings us to his second purpose. And that is to allow the true intent of the law to make us humble before God. Here in Matthew 5, Jesus explains with these six examples or contrasts, the full intent and implications of God's law so that we might embrace poverty of spirit that he's already talked about in the Beatitudes and we might embrace our need for God's grace in the gospel. As we learned two Sundays ago, the law guides us to a true understanding of God's holiness and our sinfulness so that we might recognize our need for Jesus Christ and his righteousness. And so as we look at each of these areas in which we are called to exceeding righteousness, know that it is only possible in the power of the Holy Spirit. The spirit that indwells each kingdom citizen, the spirit that indwells each Christ follower, 
Listen, He is the one who enables us to live righteously now as kingdom citizens here on this earth. So let's, let's see what Jesus has to say about this anger that kills. Notice the first point, and that is to recognize the danger of anger in the heart. Look again at the words of Jesus himself in verses 21 and 22. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. This is the danger of anger. What does that mean, though? Well, notice a couple of different points here. What Jewish tradition said about it. Here's what the Jewish religious leaders said in their tradition that if you murder someone, you are in danger of civil judgment. Now, the most famous prohibition against murder is found in the Ten Commandments. In Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, where it says explicitly, you shall not murder. In the danger of civil judgment was part of the Mosaic law, the Mosaic legislation dealing with murder. In other words, the person who murdered had to appear before a court and be judged. Murder was an executable offense in the Old Testament because it was not just a violation of God's law, but it was an assault against God's image in mankind and thereby even an assault on God himself. Now, in Jesus' day, on the side of the mountain, as he's preaching this Sermon on the Mount, no one would have denied what he just said here. No one would have denied these things. And chances are, no one, even in his audience, would have thought of themselves as guilty of murder. That's probably, I'm going to assume, true for us here this morning. Anyone here guilty of murder? Okay, I see one hand in the back. Just kidding, just kidding, you're safe. The Pharisees thought, and here's their thinking, here's their rationale. The Pharisees thought if they hadn't actually murdered anyone, then they were keeping the sixth commandment and that their righteous bank accounts were in the black. But as one commentator says, Don Carson, he asks this question, is murder merely an action committed without reference to the character of the murderer? Does not the murderer's anger and spiteful wrath lurk in the black shadows behind the deed itself? And that's why in verse 22, Jesus warns us about the danger of even allowing the attitude that could lead to murder. Notice what Jesus says here in your notes. He said, if you are angry with someone, you are in danger of divine judgment. You're not so much in danger of civil judgment if you're angry with someone, but divine judgment. Why? For only God can judge the heart. And that's what Jesus is going after right now. Notice again what he says. Verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. That is civil judgment, government judgment. And we say to that, amen. We are happy, we're glad that we live in society where governments come together and they have laws on the books. You murder somebody, justice will be served, at least some of the time, most of the time, we hope. That's a good thing. Verse 22, but Jesus says, I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. Come again, what Jesus? Jesus, notice what he's doing here. He just related anger to murder. And both put us in danger now of judgment. Now, 
before you sit there and try to soften what Jesus says, just let his words put a knot in your stomach for a second. Because Jesus is telling us that the sixth commandment not only forbids the outward act of murder, but also every thought in word that seeks to destroy a person's life. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm going to the very heart of the law. You Pharisees are all about the technicality of the law, the letter of the law. I want you to understand the spirit of the law. And in doing so, Jesus moves from murderous actions to murderous attitudes. Why? Because he knows that the issue is ultimately and always a matter of the heart. Therefore, the implication is that anger is the root of murder. And that's where we need to take the axe. Furthermore, Jesus goes on and he says, if that is true of anger, then it is also true of contempt in the ways that we express our contempt for others through our insults. Jesus says in the rest of verse 22, and whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Now, that term raka it expresses contempt for someone's mind and their intelligence, and it means something like, you stupid idiot. Fool, on the other hand, that expresses contempt for someone's heart and their character, and it means something like, you scoundrel. And obviously, these two words are not terms of endearment, but of hateful contempt for someone. Now, these things such as angry thoughts, insulting words, while they may never lead to the act of murder, Jesus is telling us they are tantamount to murder in God's sight. As John the Apostle writes in 1 John 3.15, anyone who hates his brother is a murderer, John says. Anger and contempt What we are learning here, what we are seeing here, are simply ugly symptoms of a desire to get rid of somebody who stands in our way. Our angry thoughts, looks, and words all indicate that we wish that person was dead. Now, Jesus obviously does not mean that it makes no difference at all whether we insult someone or stab someone. Listen, I would rather someone get angry with me than kill me. But what he does mean is that both actions reveal the same animosity in the heart. And since God alone is the one who sees the heart, such anger can render one subject now to God's judgment. Jesus is probably not placing these sins on a descending scale or escalating scale of significance, such as anger, raka, fool, in the kingdom of God. Instead, I believe he is simply stressing together that they are far more serious than most of us would ever think about. See, here's how we live. We rattle off insults because we have contempt in our heart, perhaps even angry in our heart, and we don't think twice about it. Jesus says, no, you need to think twice about it. This is serious in God's eyes. You claim to be a kingdom citizen, a Christ follower, living in my kingdom, this isn't how we live. This is serious. In fact, Jesus states that such Anger and contempt makes us guilty enough for the fires of hell. This is the ultimate danger of anger in the heart. Now, thankfully, God offers us forgiveness. Amen? We're thankful for that. 
He offers us forgiveness for the sin of anger in the heart in the person and work of Jesus Christ for those who are willing to repent of such murderous attitudes and actions. Now, I'm anticipating a couple of objections perhaps right now. So let me address those. And the first objection is this. Sure, I get angry, but I would never commit murder. Yes, I admit, I get angry, but I would never commit murder. And if that's what you're thinking, then you're missing the whole point of what Jesus is just talking about here. Listen, the act of murder is not all that God is concerned about. That's what the Pharisees misunderstood. In fact, that's what the Pharisees twisted and perverted in God's law. Jesus wasn't focused on those who necessarily commit murder, the physical act of murder. Listen, he was speaking that day in the Sermon on the Mount on the side of the hill. He was speaking to law-abiding citizens just like us who would never dream of murdering anyone. But Jesus is making the point that even the best of people in their hearts are sinful, and so we are in the same boat as the worst of people. Jesus is saying that we must not think that we are safe just because we have not shed blood. We are guilty enough, Jesus says, to receive divine judgment from God if we continue to harbor anger and contempt. Again, as Don Carson writes, and I quote his words here, the Old Testament law forbidding murder, must not be thought adequately satisfied when no blood has been shed. Rather, the law points toward a more fundamental problem, man's vilifying anger. Jesus, by his own authority, insists that the judgment thought to be reserved for the actual murderer in reality hangs over the wrathful, the spiteful, the contemptuous. What man then stands uncondemned? That's the point. We all need the cross of Jesus Christ. We all need what Jesus has done for us that we can never do for ourselves. But maybe there's another objection that you're thinking about, and that is this one. Well, what about Jesus? Didn't he get angry? I mean, didn't Jesus go all Indiana Jones on those money changers in the temple and drive them out with a whip? And didn't Jesus on occasion actually call the Pharisees fools? And the answer is yes. Jesus indeed showed righteous anger. His anger was mingled with grief over sin and unbelief. And unlike us, Jesus did not become angry at personal mistreatment. And so, yes, there is a place for burning with anger over sin. Our problem is we burn with indignation. Not at sin, but at offense to ourselves. Again, as Don Carson writes, in none of the cases in which Jesus became angry was his personal ego wrapped up in the issue. Our anger is typically just the opposite. In the words of another commentator, we burn with anger at petty offenses to our honor. We scream at referees whose whistles harm our favorite team. We become offended at minor snubs, minor acts of disrespect. We rage at people who cut us off in traffic or squeeze yellow lights until they turn red. We are quick to anger at personal offenses, but slow to anger over sins that offend God and mankind. And so let's all admit it here. We're all in the same boat that by and large, we are quick to anger when we are personally offended and insulted and mistreated, and we are slow to anger when sin abounds all around us. In fact, Jesus is so concerned not only about 
the preservation of life. And that's what the sixth commandment and the Pharisees were all about, that God was only concerned about the preservation of life. And yes, that commandment does address that issue. Why? Because we are all created in the image of God. Therefore, to murder somebody is an attack on the image of God. But Jesus goes beyond just the preservation of life. Why? Because he is concerned about the preservation of relationships, first and foremost, among the body of Christ. And that's why he goes to the heart of the matter here. Listen, that's why he tells us not only to recognize now the danger of the anger in your heart, but to, number two, reconcile with those who are actually angry with you. Here's Jesus' point. If anger is so serious and so dangerous, then we must, he says, we must avoid it like the plague and take action as speedily as possible. In fact, Jesus says we must not simply refrain from murderous attitudes ourselves, but we must make peace with others so as to alleviate their anger and contempt. Now, in essence, Jesus is simply taking us back to the Beatitudes. And he's telling us that if we have the favor of God's grace in our life through Jesus Christ, and we're truly kingdom citizens, then we must exemplify the Beatitudes. And specifically, the one in Matthew 5, 9, where it says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. And what Jesus does here is he then gives two illustrations of the positive steps that we should take now toward reconciliation with those who are angry with you. The first illustration is taken from going to the temple to offer sacrifices to God. And the second is taken from going to court to answer the charges of an adversary. So let's unpack these. What does Jesus mean? What's he getting at here? Notice the two illustrations. First of all, the illustration, the first one, points to the priority of reconciliation. And basically what he's telling us is reconcile first with your brother before continuing in worship. Now, that word brothers in quotes, and here's what it means. Immediately, if you're a believer and you've been in church for any length of time, you immediately think that's, that's in reference to just brothers and sisters in Christ. And you know what? You're right. But I also think the implications goes beyond that. You have to remember, Jesus, in context, is talking to whom? He's talking to mostly Jewish people. The Israelites. And when he says brother, they're brothers. They're sisters. And yes, in application and context, that would mean first, think of it in co-centric circles, the first circle, and then a larger circle, a larger circle. So you might think of it, yes, it does include, it does mean brothers and sisters in Christ. Jesus is concerned about that as the body of Christ. But it also could mean and imply by application, not just a brother in Christ, but a brother at work, a brother at your school, brother, neighborhood, sister, who is angry with you. It may even imply an unbelieving family brother or sister. So do not limit brother here only to those who are part of the LifeBridge family of God or part of another local church. Notice the illustration. He says, reconcile first with your brother, comrade, before continuing in worship. In these verses, Jesus changes from whoever to you to ensure that every Christ follower applies what he says directly to himself or herself. Notice the priority in verses 23 and 24. Jesus says, therefore... If you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. So according to Jesus, get this, according to Jesus Christ, reconciliation is important enough to interrupt your worship. 
Why? Because when there is animosity in our relationships, there cannot be integrity in our worship. Harmonious relationships with people must be in place before any true worship can take place. You go back to the Old Testament. The prophet Samuel told King Saul in 1 Samuel 15, 22, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. In other words, your worship of God is far less important than your obedience to God. And in this area, our obedience to God is to go reconciled. Now, don't miss the distinction that Jesus is making here. What Jesus has, says here is not if you have something against your brother, go. But if your brother has something against you, go. So why is that? Well, I believe Jesus is arguing from the lesser to the greater. In other words, if I should go to someone who I know is angry with me and be reconciled, then how much more should I go when I'm the one who is angry with that person? Listen, unresolved anger is so dangerous. Here's what Jesus is saying about it. That not only should you deal with your own anger in your own heart, but out of love for your brother or sister, out of love for them, concern for them, you should go and do all you can to help that person deal with his anger or contempt if you know they are angry with you. This phrase that Jesus uses, bring your gift to the altar. It assumes that a sacrifice is being offered in the temple at Jerusalem. Now, a little bit of geography here helps you understand the context and the significance of what Jesus is saying. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount are in Galilee. Jerusalem is not the same as Galilee. There's a distance. And so, Picture this. This saying envisions a worshiper that has traveled now some 80 miles from Galilee to Jerusalem with his offering. His hands are on the animal sacrifice. And suddenly, as he's putting it on the altar, he remembers. A light bulb goes off in his mind. And he remembers, you know what? I have a brother. And he has something against me. And so that worshiper leaves the animal on the altar and then makes the 80-mile journey back to Galilee to do what? To reconcile with that brother. Jesus' point is so crystal clear here. He is telling us, as his Christ followers, that it is far more important to be reconciled to your brother than to continue in worship. Why? For worship, then, it becomes just a pretense. It becomes a sham if we have behaved so poorly that a brother or sister has something against us. In other words, if we are at odds with a brother or sister because of our actions and we are unwilling to do anything about it, then all the external things that we do in worship, such as standing and singing, giving our offering, taking notes, saying hi to somebody in the greeting, being a greeter, serving in ministry even. All those external things is merely an exercise in hypocritical futility, Jesus implies. We need to first attempt to make things right we need to go and take the journey. We need to go and be reconciled and then skip out on worship, continue to not go to work. No, then continue in your worship. There's one more illustration Jesus gives to help us understand not just the priority of reconciliation, but the urgency of it all. 
And he says, reconcile quickly with your adversary before going to court. And this term, adversary, some of your translation says enemy. All that means is somebody has an offense against you. You're at odds with somebody. And that somebody could be a family member. It could be a brother or sister in Christ. It could be a neighbor. It could be a coworker. It could be anybody who then becomes, in a sense, your adversary because there is something going on. Notice the urgency in verse 25 and 26. He says, agree with your adversary quickly while you are on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge. And the judge hand you over to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. Now, the focus, Jesus here, shifts. His focus on this illustration is less on what we need to do to be reconciled. He already addressed that in the first illustration. And what is it that we need to do? We need to go. Go. Interrupt your worship and go. That's what you need to do. Here, he focuses on, and he actually is giving us a warning about the judgment that will come should you refuse to go and reconcile. The illustration here assumes that you owe your adversary a debt of some kind. And to collect on it, he or she is taking you to court for the judge to settle the conflict. Jesus is saying to us, don't wait until you get to court to work out some kind of settlement with this person. Settle out of court quickly, Jesus says. Why? Because you don't want to face Judge Judy. It's not a good thing. If the court decides the matter, the game is over. The judge, in this illustration, is going to cuff you and stuff you in prison, and you're not going to get out until you pay off the last penny of your debt, which, by the way, is impossible when you're in prison. Unless somebody comes and does it for you. Which is what Jesus Christ has done for us. You can't run from the gospel very far, can you? We need the gospel. And Jesus is even reminding us here. He has done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And so Jesus' whole point here is to reconcile quickly with your adversary before going to court. Why? Because he's reminding us judgment is looming over your head. In other words, don't wait until it's too late. Don't wait till tomorrow, till next year, till kingdom come to make peace with others. This will not only hurt the one who is angry with you, but most of all, listen to me, it will hurt you. According to Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15, a root of bitterness can creep in and overtake you and eventually will destroy you. The pictures are different. One is taken from the church, the other from the court. One concerns a brother, the other an adversary. But in both cases, the basic situation is the same. Somebody is angry with us, and the basic lesson is the same. The need for immediate reconciliation. Yet hell, how seldom do we heed Christ's call for immediate reconciliation? Think with me about this. If murder is a horrible crime, and it is, then malicious anger and contempt are horrible too. And so is every malicious insult by which we hurt or offend someone. And Jesus is telling us, we must never allow a falling out with a brother or sister to remain. Still less to even grow. We must not delay to make it right. We must not even allow the sun to set on our anger, in the words of Paul. If we want to avoid committing murder in God's sight, then we must take every possible step to live in peace with all people. Now, perhaps you're thinking, 
man, Pastor Bruce, you, I mean, you don't know. I, you don't know the situation. You don't know this person. I have tried. Oh, how I have tried and tried to reconcile. But my brother or adversary is unwilling. And my answer to you is, if you have done everything in the power of the Spirit to reconcile, you have honored God. Listen to what Paul says. In Romans chapter 12, verse 18, he says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, but remember, you is not just in your power. The you is not just all in your own human means. We are Christ followers. We have the power of the Holy Spirit. We have the Word of God. And we have the body of Christ. And you do it with those resources. Paul says, be at peace with all men. John Piper offers this helpful insight. We are responsible to pursue reconciliation, but live with the pain if it does not succeed. In other words, we are not responsible to make reconciliation happen. So let me ask this question. What is standing in the way of reconciling with someone who is angry with you? I mean, come on. Crowd this size, this large, this many people here this morning, and you're telling me nobody is angry with you? I don't believe it. Seriously, do we think there's not one person outside of these walls, and perhaps even inside these walls, that is not angry with us right now? That's not offended by something we've done. Are we seriously going to sit here and actually think that? So again, let me ask you, what is standing and keeping you from being reconciled to that person? Let's be honest. Most of the time, 99.9% of the time, Our pride stands in the way of reconciliation. We want them to make the first move. We say things like, well, if they have a problem, they can come talk to me about it. We put the onus on them because that way we don't have to take responsibility for our actions and our words and our insults and our contemptuous anger in our own heart. But that's in direct opposition to what Jesus is saying in these verses to Christ's followers. We must be the ones who humble ourselves before God and before that person and seek reconciliation with those who are angry with us. The principle here is so clear. Listen, Jesus is admonishing us. He's exhorting us that right relationships is part of the meaning of the commandment not to murder. He is saying they are essential, right, harmonious relationships if we're going to live out exceeding righteousness as kingdom citizens. Again, Jesus cares, yes, about the preservation of human life, but he cares oh so much more about the preservation of relationships with one another. This is the heart of the matter. Notice, notice this in your notes. The command, you shall not murder, seems so simple. But Jesus goes to the heart of the matter. And he's basically encouraging us to repent of anger and be reconciled through his empowering grace. If we have Christ's righteousness, we will not only refrain from shedding blood, but we will recognize the danger of anger in the heart and repent of it and then reconcile with those who are angry with us. Now, let me leave you two options that you can do with your anger. Because, again, crowd this size. Let me tell you, there are some that are sitting here right now with anger in the heart. 
There's two options for you. One, you can take it home with you and be controlled by it and ultimately destroyed by it. You can walk out of this auditorium with anger in your heart and you can take it home with you and it will destroy you. It will destroy your marriage if you're married and your family if you have a family, eventually, if you don't deal with it. Listen to what Sinclair Ferguson writes. Animosity is a time bomb. We do not know when it will go off. We must deal with it quickly before the consequences of our bitterness get completely out of control. Most human relationships that are destroyed could have been preserved if there had been communication and action at the right time. Jesus says that the right time is as soon as we are conscious that we are at enmity with our brother or sister. So, yes, you can. You have an option to take the anger in your heart and take it home with you, and you will be controlled by it and eventually destroyed by it. But there is a better option. There is a grander option. Notice it. You can lay it down right now at the cross of Jesus Christ and be forgiven by it and healed of it. Only the mercy of God in Jesus Christ can free you from the danger of the anger in your heart. It starts with humble repentance before God. And it results in glorious forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Yes, we are all guilty of murderous attitudes, but we don't have to remain in danger of God's divine judgment. Listen, because of what Jesus has done for us on the cross... We can be set free from anger. And we truly can live a life of exceeding righteousness as kingdom citizens. Jesus has done for you what you cannot do for yourself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your word on the side of the hill many years ago. And we ask that you would make it now a reality in our own lives by grace through faith. Lord, help us to see our own guilt when it comes to anger in the heart. As well as the forgiveness that is found in Jesus Christ. And so it's by your grace that we ask that we would go and be reconciled with those who are angry with us. And to do so for your glory and honor. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. The instrumentalists are going to play through a chorus. And as they do, man, if you've got anger in your heart, let me encourage you right where you're at, in prayer, lay it down at the cross. Admit it to God. Confess it. Repent of it. And ask for His forgiveness. Deal with it. Don't take it home with you.